Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. And I am joined tonight by Catherine and Amanda. Hi, ladies. Hi, Hi Ellie. Happy Glad New to Year. have you on. Yeah, Happy New Year to both Thank of you. you, too, and to everybody out there listening. Well, on tonight's show, we are going to talk about signs and symptoms of alcoholism, in particular those that we may have missed or overlooked or denied in our own journeys, and also talk about... Um, not just signs and signposts and symptoms of alcoholism, but also touch upon the topic of what it means to hit bottom. You hear a lot about people talking about high bottoms or low bottoms, um, and we want to talk about that and, and kind of relate it back to how how the journey of the, the progression of contemplating whether or not you have a problem with alcohol, what it's like to make the decision to stop, and how that factors into early recovery. Um, because one of the things that we learn as we talk to others in recovery is that most of us hit very similar signposts um, or symptoms as our own disease progresses, oftentimes even well, well, well before years before we develop any kind of really truly addictive tendencies. Um, and so these can occur, in, at least in my case, they did even decades before I even came close to um, having any kind of consequence in my life, either emotionally or physically, with alcohol. So tonight we'll talk about what some of these signposts were for us, and we encourage you, if you're listening to this show and wondering if you have a problem with alcohol, please just listen as we share and try to identify not just with the things that have happened to us as part of our journeys, but how we felt, how we felt about alcohol early on, how we felt about the process of getting sober, and how we feel in recovery, because um, irrespective of the things that actually occur to us, one of the things that seems to hold true um, as people in recovery, we all share such similar emotions and such such similar feelings. Um, and we also just want to address a little bit the top, the whole concept of what it means to, quote-unquote, hit bottom. Uh, a lot of people believe that to hit bottom you have to have very dire legal or medical or relationship or financial consequences. But in reality, hitting bottom is that moment that we decide that we are just sick and tired of being sick and tired almost not actually regardless of any overt consequences that may have happened in our lives um one of my favorite expressions in recovery is that you know they say that you hit bottom when you decide to stop digging uh that can just have everything to do with your inner emotional landscape and doesn't necessarily have to do with the things that are happening um in your outside world so anything that motivates you to get sober is low enough in our opinion um even if everything outwardly appears normal in your life and as always on this show, we like to use the power of story to discuss topics like this one. And by sharing what it was like for us, we hope that people can identify and know that they are not alone and that many, many of us go through very similar emotions and hit many of the same signposts as our alcoholism progresses. So to start us off tonight, Catherine, we're so thrilled to have you on. Thank you. It's just great to hear your voice again. 
Thank you. And, yeah, no, we, that's it's wonderful. We'd like to start with with you and, and what your journey was like as you began to realize you may have a problem, and maybe even before you began to realize you have a problem. Like, what signs can you look back on now and realize may be indicative of a problem, even if you wasn't very aware, it wasn't uh, self evident to you then, and then sort of what it was like for you for the process of quote unquote hitting hitting bottom and deciding to get sober. Yeah, thanks so much, Ellie and Amanda and everyone listening. It's it's great to be here. Um, you know, I learned very, very early on in my life um, to kind of operate in a mode of perfectionism um, as a way of getting some kind of emotional um, safety or stability or I, I was very – controlled and so even like I can't even remember being a little kid like here's an example I was in first grade and my teacher you you would you'd bring your paper up and she would grade it on the spot and I can remember I didn't color in this one thing like answer answer the question by coloring in these different things and I missed one and she was going to mark it wrong and I and I lied I, and I, I remember being, like, shocked at myself how easily – I was in first grade, and, and I was like, oh, I, I colored that white with chalk. <laughs> she, she felt it. Like, and, like, you know, I, I didn't – I don't think I made a habit of that kind of thing in school, but, like, that kind of – that willingness to manipulate the truth or other people in order to hide behind this picture of being perfect. That Mm. goes, that's like one of my earliest, earliest things. Now I am sure there are other people who are perfectionists who aren't alcoholics and addicts. Um, However, I seem to find in the recovery community, a lot of people resonate, especially the women um, with being perfectionists. And at, at a minimum, I would say like, that was one of the things that I was drinking over and the mm. shame I felt because I wasn't perfect and it just got harder and harder. So, you know, I, I actually didn't drink, I drank once in high school and I got really drunk and threw up. Um, and then in, it really didn't start until college. And I was like, I was a maniac. Like I, I, and I thought it was just because I was um, unaccustomed to drinking. I thought I just, I couldn't handle my drinking, but I was like a mess. Every time I drank, I was a total mess, you know, like throwing up, lurching, even the blackouts then. And then I finally quote unquote, like got a handle on it when I was a senior in college. Um, got a handle on it, meaning I didn't, I wasn't having that kind of messy, uh, these messy drunks. And I thought like, oh, okay, now I'm a grown up, you know, now I know how to handle my alcohol. Um, And, you know, I was, I graduated with honors. I, you know, got a job right out of school, um, you know, working in corporate America and I was a very, very hard worker. So again, perfectionist, you know, I was like the, you know, zillion hours a week person. Um, And my drinking really 
No, you know, I was just going to say something that I don't think is actually true. I was going to say my drinking really took off when I met my first husband when I was 23, but that's not even true. I I was drinking, I was going out to bars a lot um, before I met him. But this is maybe one thing is like this idea of comparing myself with other people and how they drink. So like I've said this before that when you're trying to be perfect, it's useful to have a foil. And my Mm -hmm. ex-husband was 10 years old, about 10 years older than me and was, you know, a very active alcoholic and well progressed into his disease. And so he was sort of a mess. (laughs) And so like it was kind of useful to have that because I could be like little Miss Perfect. And this, and this sort of built this nice framework for me where I could, I, I had an excuse of what I was drinking over, but like this comparing myself like, Oh, I'm not as bad as him. And then the other thing, especially, you know, in my twenties and even early thirties is like, everyone's doing it. Well, not everyone mm-hmm. was doing it. I was hanging mm-hmm. out with people who were drinking that much, but like not everyone was doing that. Um, and I think, you know, as I look back, just one one thing when I first met my my ex husband was, um, I was really thrilled that I was thrilled and amazed that he had alcohol he had cases of beer in his house and I was like, wow, like this is what grownups do. They have alcohol. And you know, that line, that Marlon Brando line from Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, like I drink for the click. And yeah. I drank for the click. Like I, 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 I would have this like smile on my face when I knew that I could like really get into it. And I was, and this just sort of, progressed and increased for me over the years, like my obsession with alcohol and like my relationship to it. Um, In the end, I would describe myself as being like a wolf. Like, where is that waitress? Why isn't she back with another glass of wine for me? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I also process wine differently than beer. My, My body just did. And so, like, I drank beer for that 10 years that I was with my first husband, but then switched to wine. And, like, I was, I definitely, like, I had a full-on love affair with wine. And I didn't, it was, like, just more, I had more of wolfy kind of thoughts about wine than um, than with beer. But, so I had this career and was, like, you know, this was a big point of pride for me, like, oh, look at me, and I'm getting promoted, and blah, 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 and I'm working so hard. Now, then you could really kind of gloss over, I could really gloss over those times when I was hungover at work, um, when I showed up a little late, when I was, I had a lot of, like, why am I so foggy-headed? Like, why? I, the reason I was working such long hours, I realized, was because I was so foggy, especially in the morning. Like, I kind of couldn't get anything done. I'd be, like, doing stuff, but I wasn't efficient about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then I guess I guess I'll, I'll pause here on this other thing that tied into the perfectionism was just, this not asking for help for anything like and I wouldn't I like 
I was so afraid, even back in college, I was totally in the wrong college and some really bad stuff happened there. And I should have left. Like I should have just left. I mean, if somebody came to me now, I mean, 19, 18, 19 year old came to me now and said, look, I, you know, this happened to me. And like, this is what the environment is like. I would say, get out of there. But mm-hmm. for me, it was a feeling like, oh, but then I'd be admitting some kind of failure. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so I stayed, but then that conveniently set up. And as then this led into my first marriage it was like it conveniently set up sadness and badness so that I had justification to drink. You would drink Mm -hmm. too if you had my life. Um, And I, I really, I could find any justification to drink and was, it was sort of a, like a point of pride. And like in the later years, I would say this, this sounds so silly to me now, but I would say like, well, you know, I certainly abuse alcohol. I know that, but I, you know, I'm not an alcoholic. Like who said, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, but that really made sense <laughs> to me. That was as close as I could get to being honest. Yeah. I really, I really relate to the perfectionist thing. part mm-hmm. of it that you're talking about too, Catherine, in that, and in, in it's, it's interesting because I, I used to look at perfectionism sort of in an event, an event oriented thing. Like I need to be perfect at this or look perfect at that. But, um, a lot of my perfectionism was sort of like emotional perfectionism, not just about myself, but of everybody totally. around me. And mm-hmm. it became it became so interwoven into how I viewed absolutely everything, people and places mm-hmm. and things and everything. It is exhausting to live like that and to have that constant sort of stream of subconsciousness coming through just to sort of mentally managing everything and everyone with myself at the top of the list. And when I would drink, this is way early on, that was that it relieved that. It took away the the desire to even care about any of that. And so yep. when I you know, it, it took me a long time to realize that perfectionism was actually a state of mind for me, not just, you mm-hmm. know, I need to have the perfect Christmas or the perfect, you know, outfit or something. It was just the way I was and how how yeah. unsustainable that is as a state of mind. And drinking way early on was that that little relief valve that I could switch, and all uh, not, and then the not caring would come in, and it was such a. That's why it, it felt that that's where the uh, sort of emotional love affair came in with it, because it was the one time I felt like I could just kind of be, and that's why it felt like a solution and not a problem for me. And I think why I was so defensive of it that like if anybody gave me a hard time about my drinking, it would be like. I was so exhausted. Don't you see how exhausted I am? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and, you know, it, and I, I'm doing so much. I mean, I, I married somebody who wasn't capable of doing a whole lot, so I had to do everything, you know. But I also yeah. had to do everything because I thought that's what I did. I mean, you know, that what you had to do, like, oh, the woman has to work 80 hours and clean the house. And I was too, I was too proud to hire a cleaning lady. I was so dumb. Like, you know, even though I worked all the time, um, you know, so I, I was, I really was exhausted. And then I used that as I had justification to drink. Mm-hmm. And you deserved a reward. And it felt like right. a yes, reward ma'am. at the time. <laughs> That's absolutely right. And that was my way of relaxing. So I did what that was a lot. Get off my that... back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, get <laughs> off my back. Exactly. 
Well, and and it ties into sort of the idea of outwardly, you know, how when we do the justifying or the the comparing and um you know, I, I like how you say, you know, I definitely abuse alcohol, but I, I don't have a problem with it. And we don't think we have a problem because it, it does feel like the solution. And how, what was the shift for you internally? Like, when did it start to begin to be, was there a period in your life or a time when it kind of changed from something that was, you know, your God-given right to something that was, that you felt was starting to drag you down? I mean, how did, can you describe sort of your emotional landscape as 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 your relationship with alcohol shifted towards problematic for you internally? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's one challenging thing for me then and a little bit now was to separate the emotional landscape vis-a-vis the alcohol and vis-a-vis that marriage, mm-hmm. which was which was just a very um, dangerous situation. And so my emotional landscape, but my my job was really challenging too. I, I had everything, everything seemed so hard. And I also can be prone to all or nothing thinking, like real black or white thinking, like nothing can change. I'm in this marriage now and that's it. Now I'm stuck. You made your bed, now lie in it. And like, I didn't see any way, like there was literally for me no way out. So my emotional landscape, I will say that, you know, in 2005, I was suicidal. Um, I was thinking about jumping off the roof of my building um, I lived in a high-rise building. Um, my hair was falling out. Um, I had I I weighed about ninety pounds. Um, I looked like a skeleton. Um, and so my emotional landscape was was pretty grim. But I also thought then. You know, I found an email from 2006 that I sent to my ex-husband saying, you know, we're both alcoholics mm. and we we have to get help. So I did know and I had I had gotten myself into therapy um, at the beginning of two, no. I was suicidal in 04. I got into therapy in 06. No, I got into therapy in 06 and then, yeah, and then left him in 07. Um, I'm trying to, to, to do the math. And so it's hard for me to separate. I realize now that um, leaving the marriage was a little bit of what they call in some recovery circles pulling a geographic, which mm-hmm. is just changing the kind of um, ABCs of your life. Like, you know, it it would be like, moving or having a baby or, um, in my case, leaving the marriage, that actually was pulling a geographic. Now, I I also had to leave. Like, I would have ended up dead. It, it wasn't a good situation. So, um, but the thing was is that I, I really sort of had this sigh of relief, like, oh, great, like, now um, – now things will be will be okay, and I can drink, and, mm-hmm. and everything's going to be fine now that I've left right. him. 
you you fixed the quote unquote problem. So you know, I fixed right. the problem, and the and I was in therapy, and I was getting a lot of help for some of my you know early childhood trauma and my trauma. But the trauma from that relationship was was significant. So. I mean, it is what it is. It probably would have been more expedient to not be drinking while I was <laughs> doing all this yeah. work. But, going to therapy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in fairness, I I got to a rather emotionally stable level. And I actually, I thought, like, things were pretty good. Now I'm, like, living the dream. But then things started to change again around around the alcohol. It, I mean, it's mm-hmm. progressive. If, if anybody's wondering, like, you know, my I've told this story before that so so I'm remarried now, and um, I got married in sobriety, and two years before I got sober, I came home drunk one night to my now husband and said, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I have to get help. I got to get sober. And he was like, no, you know, don't go crazy. You're you're you you just need to take it easy. Mhm. And I took it easy for another 2 years and it got more and more unpredictable. Like on the topic of pro- progression, I mean it it just it went from it went to being very unpredictable. Like I could go out and have one drink, two drinks tonight and be hammered. And I'd be like, why am I so hammered after only two drinks to having 10 drinks the next night and not feeling anything at all, um, which I found out in sobriety is actually a symptom of late stage alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it it was just more unpredictable and life just got harder. Like I was, I, you know, had this, now I had this much bigger job and, but things were just like everything felt so hard and i couldn't i couldn't understand why everything was so hard and why it wasn't getting better for me and why i was so anxious i was like why am i anxious all the time were you connecting it at all at that point to the alcohol well, I will say that even going back probably 15 years, I remember reading Michael J. Fox talking about getting sober in a magazine, and I was obsessed with recovery stories. And um, I was I used to read Stephanie Wilder Taylor's um, blog because it was funny, and then she got sober, and I was like, <gasps> and I was reading it, reading it, and then she started posting sobriety stories, recovery stories, these don't get drunk Fridays. And I would Mm -hmm. read that. And then she started an online group that I was too chicken to join. Um, And then I actually found crying out now and I would like read them and I have like this big glass of wine and read them. And, (laughs) um, and, and I, I, I hid the bookmark. Like, I buried the bookmark for crying out now somewhere. Like, who was looking through my bookmarks on my computer? I don't know. But, um, <laughs> and I've told the story before of how I, like, I went to, this was probably in 05, 06. I, I went to the AA website and did this 12 questions that they have, like, are you maybe an alcoholic? And I, like, carefully picked my way through the questions, like, well, 
do you black out? Well, sometimes. Well, I'll put that as a no because it's only every mm. once in a while. It was like every time. By the end, it was like almost every time. Um, yeah. You know, and I would pick through the questions like, well, okay, it's it's only it's only five yeses. You know, that's pretty good. And then I get to the bottom and it's like, if you answered even one of these questions, yes, you may be an alcoholic. And And I did that. Like, I can remember doing that, like, three times, hoping yeah. for a different answer. I mean, there's nothing more alcoholic than, like, hoping for a different different answer. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the interesting thing that you talk about, you know, burying the bookmark, you don't even really know who's looking and you know, nobody's looking. But it's I heard a, somebody share one time, and I, I this really resonated with me, that he was home alone, and he had a bottle stashed somewhere in his house, and he was – he was like really quietly opening the cupboard and really quietly pulling the bottle out from underneath whatever it was hidden under. And there's nobody to hear him at all at home. Yeah. And he realized the person I'm I'm trying to hide this from is me, you know, that yeah. I don't want to see it. It was like such a poignant example of like, I don't even want to acknowledge what it is that I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. And I, and I did that. That's how powerful the denial can be. And, I was reading Caroline Knapp's book, um, Drinking a Love Story, back in 1997, and I kept yeah. it stashed in my underwear drawer because I didn't want anyone to know I yeah. had it. And I, I moved twice and secretly, you know, packed it in with my underwear and put it in the next underwear drawer the next place I went because it was it was that same kind of, that was as close as I could get to being like, wow, this that that there's some, there was just some sort of attraction there, but I just could not make that leap between what I was going through and the fact that it was the alcohol that I needed to get sober and then things would be less hard. It was, it was like a secret from myself that I knew I needed to get sober. So mm-hmm. powerful. And how, and how if somebody had asked me outright, you know, that somebody I trusted uh, that I knew well had said, do you think you have a problem with alcohol? I, I would have believed myself when I said no, even as I'm having this obsession with recovery stories and even as I'm going through that, <laughs> that long process of coming to terms with the fact that maybe it's alcohol, but I, it wasn't really an overt admission on any, at, at any point until it had to be. No, definitely. I remember. I think one of the, go ahead, Amanda. Go ahead, Catherine. Oh, I was just going to say, I remember I would go to Elliot gotten sober and we would, I remember one particular lunch and, you know, she was writing One Crafty Mother at the time. And um, I used to read them all the time with my glass of wine, just like you, Catherine. But she wrote, <laughs> and, and she was it was kind of pointed at me. I think it was Praying for the Burn is the name of it. And it was, you know, it was basically talking about, you know, like seeing someone in trouble and hoping that they'll just burn their hand on the stove a little bit so it'll wake them up. And rather than them having to, you know, like have some disaster in their life and I remember reading that and going, this is about me. And I'm like, that. Yeah, it was. It was about Which, you. And it was about me. And I, when I got Were you over, like, I finally cut off. I was just like, I'm not going to lunch with her anymore. Stupid silly yeah, what chick. a jerk. I was, what yeah. a jerk. What a jerk for Karen. And... <laughs> And I, but I used to do what you did too, Catherine. I would acknowledge I'm like, you know, yeah, I certainly drink, you know, um, you know, I abuse alcohol sometimes, but I'm not an alcoholic like her. I mean, I did that. I, I, I did not acknowledge that until I got sober. But I did that a lot. Um, you know, yeah, learning in my twenties. 
<laughs> and this is this is an interesting phenomenon to explore because I do think this is extremely extremely common with people who are in that progression of um you know they're what you know we've talked before about an emotional addiction to something i mean you're not, none of us are necessarily close to a physical addiction to alcohol but that constant negotiating with ourselves a constant point of comparison the slow drift away from you know healthier behaviors or healthier people and i would fall in with a crowd that drank i perceived as drinking heavier than i did so that i could be the one that was yeah. that felt responsible like that um there's an expression that I always get wrong, but I I really like it. It's like people, I'll just use the word normal for lack of a better word, like normal people manage their drinking around their life and people who are alcoholics manage their life around their drinking. Oh, well, the, managing yeah. my life around my drinking was happening really early on. I wouldn't go to a movie because I didn't serve alcohol there. I'd watch a movie at home so I could drink. So I'm managing my life around alcohol, but it the the, the dots just didn't connect. Because it was yeah, just how I was. It's it's also like then the thoughts around that. So like I got together with some acquaintances that I don't see all that often, and I remember I was on some like oh I'm gonna do a cleanse. I mean this thing lasted like three days where I wasn't gonna eat gluten and like stop cigarettes and alcohol. I mean it, it lasted like five seconds, but. And I was obsessed with the fact that I was doing this. And we went to this place and it was some weeknight and we met up and I was like, oh, I'm not drinking alcohol, you know, because I'm on this cleanse. And these two just didn't order any alcohol. And I, I was, mm. I was mesmerized that, that <sighs> these people just like were at a, a dinner and they didn't have at least one glass of wine. I was mesmerized. And then I can remember, this might have been my last New Year's Eve drinking or maybe two before it. Um, I went to a party and I was like count like two hours before midnight. It was like counting the bottles of champagne. Like there's not going to be enough. There's not going to be, I mean, there was like so 35 bottles of champagne. Yeah. <laughs> well, so me, me and this, this, drinking buddy of me were like we better go to, to the liquor store it's like ten thirty, you know and my husband's best friend was hosting the party and I remember the shame because he looked at me and was like Catherine there's plenty like mm -hmm. and and I was so ashamed and was like oh and but I secretly was like I don't know if there is I mean there were like 35 bottles for like 20 people I mean and people yeah. were drinking stuff other than champagne not me I was drinking the champagne but I'm like no I don't think you understand there's not enough for me <laughs> right <laughs> the fear of um, running out that that was definitely fear, and we talked about this briefly earlier but or I'd go out to dinner and there'd be four people, you know, sitting down to a meal and they'd we'd order one bottle of wine and I would feel no actual fear yeah. in like in my fear. belly. I'd have this little like gut of like, Really? Just one? There's four of us. Like, wow. And yeah. and a like possessiveness a about it, like everybody's pouring the glasses and yeah. I'm watching to make sure that I'm I'm getting my share. And oh, now yeah. there's a, there's three inches left and it's like, can I can I pour all of that into my glass and not seem rude and just try, just constantly, almost subliminally managing that thought process in my head the whole time, and that, and you know, this is when I'm like 22 and 23. This is way before um, anything even seems remotely problematic for me. But a, a possessiveness, a 
you know, control yeah. o- over it. You know, I got a I got a hundred dollar bottle of champagne for something and um the reason I never drank it was because I knew I would have to share it with other people and I would only get like a glass of it. And mm. that kind of wasn't acceptable, but it also I knew that it wasn't exactly kosher to like crack the hundred dollar bottle of champagne by yourself mm-hmm. and knock it back, which is what I wanted to do. So it actually sat there gathering dust for, I don't know, it was like a couple of years, three years maybe, and then I got sober. And yeah. I said to my husband, like sometime in the first year, I said, oh, well, like if I ever drank again, it would just be for that bottle. And he was like, no, I I don't think you need to do that. And I was like, oh, right. And we, we re-gifted it. Some friends of ours got engaged. And I was like, you know what? Like, re-gift. Yeah. yeah. But it was very possessive. Like, I didn't want to share it with anybody. And that, I mean, in a nutshell, it, that's the difference with, between somebody who's developing a problem with alcohol and somebody or who's, I mean, I, I believe that I was born this way, you know, with a different relationship to alcohol the minute I had my first drink and felt that sort of like, oh, this is how normal people feel. Like, it, it was different for me all the way around. Um, but that people who don't have a problem with alcohol just never, ever think the way that we're talking. It just doesn't even make sense well, to them. It's such a good point, and like there's there's a woman that I know who did lots of drugs and drinking um for she works in the entertainment industry, so she's like in the media and it's really glamorous and stuff and um she did lots of that, but so did everybody else, right and then years go by, and she's like, "Oh my gosh, she got sober and has been sober for over ten years now and um she, there was some reunion of like work people that she shared this recently. And she said she was the only one in recovery. And like, it seemed like she was the only one who kind of needed to be, even though all these people had been, you know, doing the cocaine mm, and drinking yeah. all night and not everybody has the same relationship. Even people who in their twenties are like in college or whatever, used to excess it's not ideal there can still be consequences if you're you know doing those things um but you may you still may not you know it's 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 really what's happening in the inner in the inner landscape and i kind of think like what are what were my thoughts on moderation like first of all why would i want to moderate like i want to get loaded so why and then it would be like, oh, well, you don't understand. I mean, I, I have to entertain a lot for work, so I have to drink. Or what else am I going to do? Who, You know, I live in a big city. This is what people do. This is We meet out at bars. I'm like, what, I'm not going to have any friends. I'm not going to have anything to do. I'm going to be boring. Um, so I had this resistance to the even the idea of moderation. And when I think about my friends who who don't really drink, like they just this would never even occur to them. Like maybe mm-hmm. they'll have a half a beer. Maybe they won't. It just It just doesn't not matter. even mm-hmm. like one time my mother was putting and this might have even been a holiday. She was having yeah, it was like Christmas or something. She had dinner and she had forgotten to buy wine. <laughs> 
And I was like, what? <laughs> what? That's the first thing I buy. You buy but dinner she, to go with the wine, not the other way around. Yeah, what are you talking <laughs> yeah. about? Skip dinner. Uh, Let's just have the wine. The dinner just, just kills your buzz. Oh, mm-hmm. You know, it's, and it's interesting, sort of the different war cries that we use. Amanda, I don't mean to, I'm not going to tell your story for you, but I was, you know, we've known each other for ages, and I was witness to kind of your war cry of um, what, in what Catherine said about I work and I have to entertain and it's all part of it. I mean, for a long time, I think your drinking was, you know, your thoughts around your drinking were sustained by the fact that you're doing really well in your job and you're continuing to get promoted. A lot of what Catherine was talking about, like outwardly, there there really wasn't any sign that alcohol was a problem in your life. You know, that it's that yeah. that when we talk about emotional landscapes, I mean, and you would even go so far as to say like, yeah, I, I know, I might, you know, I might even be an alcoholic, but, you know, as long as everything else outside in your life was trucking along just fine, then you yeah. sort of self-selected out of the fact that it could be, that you could be a pro- an alcoholic because alcoholics well, who- by nature have consequences that affect their life and that wasn't happening to you yet. Yeah, and it's like, yeah. who am I and hurting? That, right. Right. And the other thing that um, is, you know, I actually do have, you know, what they call, you know, some would say I have a low bottom because I do have arrest. But the, if you took that away, um, I I was had my all of my life all together. I had everything mm-hmm. in place, and I made sure of it. I mean, I had a great job with promotions. I owned my own home. You know, I got divorced, and I bought my ex-husband out of the house. You know, like I was able to take, you know, do it all on my own. I didn't need anyone's help. You know, I would, you know, take care of the yard. I would take care of the house. I would take care of my job. I would take care of everyone else. And, I, you know, I wasn't taking care of me and, and except for it had drink. And, you know, God forbid you question that. And it's interesting. Mm-hmm. It, I, I was so good at it. And it, most everyone thought of me as the party girl. Don't get me wrong. There's not a person who knew me who didn't think, oh, Amanda is a, a lot of fun and has a good time. Um, and that, for the most part, they thought it was fun. You know, a lot of most people didn't see me at the end of the night when I, it became unfun. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, I actually very recently someone that I work with made a comment that said, you know, I knew Amanda drank too much sometimes, but I never thought she was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, how you know? In, in hindsight, you know, and I didn't. You know, I would acknowledge it. I would say, yeah, I might, I drink alcoholically sometimes, and yeah, it runs in my family, but I have it under control. I mean, I actually did acknowledge that I was probably an alcoholic, but it was, um, it wasn't, it was something that I could say, but it wasn't something that I believed. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were, you were one of those alcoholics that didn't need to do anything about it because you were, you know, you were. It wasn't. It wasn't a problem. Being an alcoholic wasn't it a wasn't, problem for you. It was. C- it wasn't kind of harming my life. It. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like I. Ha- well, I, I did ask control. myself that. Like, yeah. I mean, and you know, somebody. I just heard somebody this morning uh, in recovery share about how controlling he was about everything in his life and. He was like, you know, I really took myself so seriously, and and that really resonated with me. Like, I controlled everything. I was very strong-willed in all areas of my life. Like, Mm. I could will myself to sit at my desk for a 12-hour day and just forget to eat. Like, I could will myself to do that um, Mm. over and over and over. And so, like, 
And I really had this idea that, that it was a matter of willpower that like even, and I knew my ex-husband was an alcoholic and even when we were married, I would be like, why can't he just get it together and change? Like I didn't understand. I really, I actually really struggled with the concept of this is a disease. Um, Yeah. Even, even though it's in the DSM, like, but with symptoms and pathologies, but like, I really just didn't understand. I was like, why can't he look at me? I have my, my act together. Why doesn't he? Um, and, and it wasn't until after I got sober and I really struggled with saying that I was an alcoholic for several months. I just knew that something had to change. Um, I, I began to realize how strong-willed I was in every single other area of my life. To to my detriment, I was so controlling. Um, like I never asked for help for anything. Um, my now husband said to me, "Like who who went with you back to your apartment after you left?" Because I left my first husband like at ten o'clock at night and just walked out the door with my purse and had arranged the time to go back and get my stuff. And um, he was like, who went with you? I'm like, what are you talking about? No mm-hmm. one went with me. I went by myself. Like I went back by, it never even occurred to me to ask somebody for help. Anyway, like, so it, I realized that it just didn't track that I just couldn't like, quote unquote, get my act together or, or control my drinking. Like it wasn't a matter of willpower. Because everywhere else in my life, I was totally dominated by will. I think that's so common, and that's where all the negotiating and justifying comes in. And this is, you know, again, the commonalities that people have as they're in that, they might even be in the process of of going, of working their way towards recovery, and they don't even know it with that, uh, you know, I'll drink a glass of water in between my glasses of wine, or I would stay away from hard alcohol, or I mean, because we all still believe so firmly that our will will be enough. Like we're gonna handle on this, mm-hmm. we're gonna handle on everything else, and that's you know, and and it, it we, because we're strong-willed and we tend to be, you know, we, somebody was, I was laughing with a friend the other day. Like when I think about how much I accomplished in my life, even while I was drinking and/or hungover, I mean it's pretty astronomical that I was mm-hmm. operating so you know on two cylinders almost all the time, and still was so strong-willed mm-hmm. that. You know, everything, kids were always immaculately dressed, and I never missed a conference or a meeting. Or I mean, everything was always outwardly perfect because I was in that constant, um, you know, that sort of if, if anything falls over, if anything doesn't measure up, then someone's going to peek behind the curtain, and I i don't even want to peek behind the curtain. I don't even want to know what's in there. And so yeah. we, can, we, can live, we can live in that gray area for a really long time where we're in this constant tug of war with what the world sees and how we feel on the inside. Because I believe yeah. that, that emotional that emotional addiction to you know our our relief our our alcohol our drug of choice the thing that makes us feel you know that feels like the solution I mean that emotional addiction is really really powerful and it 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 can you know that's why for a lot of people it does take some sort of outward force a DUI or losing a job or some you know some in my case it had to get to the point where there was outside pressure to get me to get sober I wasn't I didn't care enough about my internal emotional landscape to really have that be enough for me to get sober. Um, but one of the coolest things about people talking more openly about recovery and people like Stephanie Wilder-Taylor's blog or what we're doing here or people being sharing their stories is 
the point of identification with how we felt in that process can come earlier on. You know, that yeah, Catherine's right. saying, I didn't understand why everything was so hard. I mean, that's so poignant because mm-hmm. what, it's hard because we're, we're we're juggling this sort of internal dark side with this, the way that we're just willing the world to see how we are. Um, yeah. So it, it, along those lines, Catherine, I mean, I, you've told your story before on this, but I think, you know, within the within the frame of reference of what we're talking about in terms of of getting sober when there aren't really, you know, obvious outside pressure points. Like, what was that? What was that like for you? Somebody who's strong willed and doesn't want to ask for help, and you know, how did you, how did you make that shift to I need to get help? Yeah, so I had that moment of saying, you know, I need to do something, and it was like, oh no, you just need to take it easy. And so I took it easy for two more years, and that's really when I started noticing that progression. It was just unpredictable, and I was I was starting to get sloppier, like slurring mm-hmm. more, falling down, blacking out, um, those dreaded text messages to friends where I would try to, like, feel out what had happened, and they would be like, mm-hmm. you were fine. You know, the dreaded, like, you were fine. There's so many texts of, like, where I was fine, and I just have no idea how I really was. Um, so, you know, that stuff was happening. My amount of caring about anything was really going downhill. So I was in, not married, but in the relationship and living with my now husband. Um, And there, you know, things were just not really going great with us. And there was a lot that I just was kind of blaming on him. Um, I, I really had this active fantasy, which I've mentioned before, of like, why am I doing all of this work to keep up this facade of the relationship and the job and the apartment? Like, like, and I would point to my first husband as like, look at him. He's drinking with impunity and he doesn't care about any of that stuff. Now, might I add, Mm. he died from this disease last Mm -hmm. year. So at the age of 48, um, he drank himself to death. So, you know, but he, I was looking to him and I just, I really would be like, I just want to go to a desert island where I can just drink the way I want to drink. Um, And so that was all sort of bubbling up. And so my husband and I ended up in kind of an emotional crisis and um, I, after a kind of a three-day, like, rage fest bender where I was just, like, you know, taking it all out on him. I He he kind of pushed back a little bit, and I remember him saying a few times, like, I'm sick of drinking. He put it that way, but I knew what mm-hmm. he meant was he was sick of my drinking. And anyway, I heard a voice that said, it's time. Mm. And I actually went, and I was like, what was that? blog that I had bookmarked and I went and I hunted him through all the bookmarks and I found crying out now which had a link to an online community which I joined and um, started following the advice of people and the first thing I noticed to my huge huge relief was people whose emotional experiences were exactly like mine. I was I was mm-hmm. still in the place of comparing myself to people. Um, I was really resistant to recovery meetings because 
I just had this idea of like they, you know, what they were like. Um, and then, and I, I was afraid of people finding out um, this guy, the same guy who was talking about taking himself too seriously this morning, he said he got sober in a really small town and he would drive like two hours to go to a far away to go to a meeting because he was mm-hmm. too afraid. And then he finally got sick of driving. So he like crept into these meetings because he thought that everybody in this small town would care whether or not he was an alcoholic. And he's like, no one cared. No one is even thinking about me. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, but but hey, like I had those thoughts, you know, and I live in a city with eight and a half million people. Like, I mean, yeah. who cares about what I'm doing? But um, I, what I noticed, I started reading recovery literature, um, and I was interacting with other sober people online, and they were having the same experiences that I had, and I was like, whoa, like. I think like that. I've had that experience. Like I didn't, and I had had so much shame because I thought I was the only one and I wasn't alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized what I was kind of to your point before Ellie of like drinking to hide out. I was drinking cause I was really desperate for connection. Yeah. I didn't want to ask for help and all I wanted was to be isolated. But what I really wanted was connection and, yeah. um, and help and to be seen. Um, And that's what I got by interacting with other sober people. And then that was how I was a pretty slow operator for, for the first several months. I, I, I I didn't, this was where my willpower came in actually that I stayed sober kind of in spite of myself, but I was, I was in hindsight, pretty resistant and I suffered more than I needed to because I was so resistant. Um, but I interacted with these people every day, including you two. And, um, it was like, Oh, well here are people whose experiences are exactly like mine and are calling themselves alcoholics. And it was sort of like, Hmm, if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a lot of anxiety, um, months kind of four through seven, um, in early sobriety and I probably could have gotten more relief from that if I had sought in person help. Uh, I did tell my therapist that I was sober, um, but I was still really resistant to in-person meetings until I, I started meeting some of these online people in real life. You guys know that I travel a lot for work. And I started meeting people. I was like, these guys are so awesome. Why don't I know anybody like this in my town? And then it was like, oh, oh. well. <laughs> I was, oh, I, I do. Oh, I could. I, yeah, I could. I was, I was lonely. That's what, that's what actually brought me into um, recovery meetings. And I was really nervous. And I kind of was forcing myself to raise my hand. And I didn't. I was too afraid to really ask, like, what is going on? Like, why? What are they doing? I don't get it. But I kind of instinctively just knew to show. Well, you know what happened? There was some crisis that happened in my family, and I kind of instinctively went to a meeting, and I was like, oh, I feel better. So now mm-hmm. tomorrow, maybe I'll feel better again if I do that again. So I kind of picked my way along. Um, I, I, in hindsight, it was a mistake to not – do that sooner um 
I mean, it takes what it takes. So who cares? I'm here now, but I suffered more than I probably needed to by trying to do it too much on my own, but there's my will for you, <laughs> you know? Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not, I mean, very, I, 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 Amanda, you might be the only example of somebody that I've seen that takes their will, like and uses their power for good instead of evil. You took that strong <laughs> party girl will that you had, like, I, you know, raising your bottle and like, I'm like, you know, I'm fine. <laughs> and you took all of that drive and you really, you applied it directly to getting and staying sober. I mean, that was an example of like, but when we commit to something and when we, when we finally, you know, let go and go all in, that will can shift to really en- enriching our lives. But it's a, for most people, I think it's a very slow sort of chiseling away of will and I, at least I needed a lot of evidence that this is going to be worth it, that I'm going to feel better, that I'm going to feel better. And and the irony is you don't always feel better right away. As a matter of no, fact, a lot of times exactly. we feel worse. Because even though, and I've had so many conversations with, with people in my you know recovery circle recently about how you know I'm three months sober, I'm six months sober, and I feel worse. Why why am I mm-hmm. doing this? Why am I staying sober? And for people who and I'm just going to use the for, you know the terminology of emotional bottom for people who have had an emotional bottom and there's no real obvious you know wreckage or suffering like if I had a DUI and I got arrested and you know everybody's angry with me and I've got all these pressure points that are kind of keeping me on track even if I don't feel like it I kind of have to and there's nobody around me saying, you don't really have a problem, Ellie, don't worry about it. There's nobody in my life that was saying that when I was getting sober. But for somebody whose emotional landscape is really what, what made, you know, it was enough for them and they wanted to get sober, so you lose your anesthesia. You lose your your relief valve mm-hmm. of alcohol and you have to go, and your life is still exactly the same as it was. So whatever it was that you were drinking mm-hmm. over or around is still there, um, you know, that, Catherine, I think your story is such a powerful example of how, um, where the relief comes in is directly proportionate to how much we're willing to surrender to the idea that we can be helped, that we're worthy of help, and that that, that connection will come um, because it's easy to throw in the towel and say, I feel I feel awful, I'm having all these feelings that I don't want to have, and there aren't any external pressures that are forcing us to stay on the straight and narrow. Um, yeah. But, you know, you stayed, you stayed with it, and you say, I got sober even in spite of myself. It's like just exposing ourselves enough to that connection and that community to the point where it feels better to be sober yeah. than it does to not I mean, I knew, I knew I couldn't go back. You know, I knew that I, – I, I knew enough that that wasn't going to work for me. And I will say, like, when that anxiety spiked mm. around months four and five, I was – it was the worst that it had ever been in my life, and I thought – well, oh my God, like, is this ever going to get better? But I knew I couldn't go back. So I just kind of kept taking it on faith. Everybody was telling me it was going to get better. So I said, okay, like, and I stuck with it. And now, you know, on the face of it, nothing has changed. Other than, like, I got married, but I'm still with the guy I lived with. We live in the same place. I have the same job. The job has gotten bigger and I've gotten more successful, um, since I got sober, surprise, surprise. Um, but you know, the thing is, is like, I'm not that perfectionism. I've actually gotten a lot of help with. I've talked about that on the show where like, I used to think at work that I had to answer every single email that I got today. 
Like, no, you mm-hmm. don't. You, what three things are you working on today? All right, then that's what you're working on. Everything else is going to have to wait. Um, I realized that if I, I thought that if I were imperfect, then I was incompetent. Um, so I've done a lot of work around that. I've also, I've really almost completely unhooked from my codependency. And we did a show on codependency um, that, you know, that Melody Beattie book was like <laughs> codependent no more. It was mm. like the devil when I picked it up. I was like, oh, I, I couldn't even read it. It was so me. <laughs> How yeah. I was I was so like entrenched in what other people were thinking, what other people were doing. Like, why don't they behave better? Like they should do this or they should do that or shouldn't do that. And now I'm like, well, they're just doing what they do. Like, Mm. so on the surface, nothing has changed, but I am like, I am happy. I'm cruising Mm -hmm. along, like I'm tackling projects. I'm every day I get more and more clarity. um, And a lot of really exciting things are happening for me. Um, And so again, like what has changed is my, is my emotional landscape nothing yeah on the outside the way you metabolize your world has changed the people everything else yeah. is just the way it is it's going to be no matter what and i think one of the most powerful things that i've learned over the past year and i'm i'm witnessing i mean i have the honor of like witnessing other women that are new in sobriety going through other people too but primarily women is who i interact with and it's the difference between going through something and going around it you know, yeah. in sobriety, we just we don't if we're if we're committed to our recovery, we do not have the option of of you know the mental, physical trapdoor of alcohol or drugs or any other form of escape, and so it hurts like hell when we're in the middle of it because we're not taking you know we're not flicking that trapdoor and dropping through. We're going to get to the other side of it, and that that you know, the miracle of that and the transformative power of that never ceases to amaze me. And so people who have struggled with their emotional landscape and get sober and it feels like, oh, my God, it's so much worse because like, you're feeling everything. You're going through everything and not around yeah. it. And and that black and white thinking that we have, like when I feel awful, I think this. I guess this is just the way I am now. I guess I'm just going to yeah. always feel awful and <laughs> nothing good is ever going to happen. And when I feel good, I'm like, well, the other shoe is going to fall any minute now. I have such a hard time having faith in, in the good feelings and I just feel, you know, I believe wholeheartedly in the crap. And but yeah. the reality is life is always a slurry of all of that, and I just you know I don't escape from it no matter what, and I keep on going, and that's yeah. recovery to me. It's it's and and I don't do it by myself. You know that's the other piece of this that we always talk about is the community and the connection. It's that I'm not I'm not leaving it all up to my own will because that's going to lead me down a path of just even if it doesn't lead me to a drink, it's going to lead me to a lot of suffering. I don't have to do this by myself. Yep. And that's uh that's so powerful to to know that, you know, if I can just not drink, stay sober, ask for help, those things that you hear over and over and over again in recovery, and even if I don't believe them, if I can believe that other people tell me that they're true, it, it, they end up being true if I can just get there. It's so amazing. Mm-hmm. It's really powerful. Um, well, as usual, we have passed the past an hour more quickly than than it feels like it's going <laughs> so thank you we we tackled a lot of different a lot of different topics today but um i just let's briefly do what we normally do and amanda we haven't 
Catherine and I have been going on and on. Do you want to sum up some thoughts about today's show or some things you'd like to leave our listeners with or things that really struck you from what we talked about? Um, well, I just, Catherine, it was just great to have you on the show and, and great to hear your story. It's funny, you know, I know you've told it, but something I've, I've heard, you know, your whole story all at once and one of our listeners had requested that they really, or not not just one, actually several, you know, they really identified with you and I appreciate that so much. And it's amazing how, you know, things were very different for us, but they're so much alike and, you know, I just love you to pieces. Um, but uh, just a, a couple of things to leave with the listeners. You know, there was, you know, Catherine, I, there were so many things that you talked about that um, happened to me along the way. Like I said, you know, I have, you know, I obviously had some consequences and had to get sober. But for anyone who's listening, you know, there were things that I think all, most of us experience along the way. You know, that feeling, I, I remember that feeling of wanting to die. Um, Catherine, I used to have these visions of running into a telephone pole. And, you know, I didn't realize that that was a sign that was, something was wrong. Um, I had physical things starting to happen to me, and I had extreme denial around those. You know, I had a panic attack. Um, and it turns out that that was most likely me withdrawing from alcohol. And, you know, I, and Ellie, um, very kind, in a very kind message, you know, pointed that out to me. But, you know, my denial, I, you know, I held fast my ability to continue drinking. And, um, you know, these there's there's so many things. You know, I, I had that stubbornness. I had the negotiating with my drinking, you know, um, I would, you know, have conditions, you know, Catherine was talking about, you know, her friends just being able to pour a glass of wine and, or, and, and, and just leave it. Or, you know, I used to do things, you know, to um, justify my drinking and I didn't realize that I was, um, it was a sign that something was wrong. So I guess my point is there's, you know, all these different things that Catherine talked about along the way. There's, those are, I think, everything that you said, Catherine, I can identify with. And mm-hmm. my point is, you you know, you got off the, you know, you got off the, uh, you stopped digging. as a, You stopped mm-hmm. digging a little bit sooner, you know, before there were some consequences. Um, some of the, you know, what people think are, oh, these are, you know, now, now I'm an alcoholic. You know, I, there, I was an alcoholic long before I was able to able to acknowledge it myself and so if anyone out there is listening if you have identified with any of these feelings that we've shared tonight just you know you don't have to keep digging you don't have to you know have a huge life consequence in order to um to stop drinking you know things can get better and it, you know it is it's not easy to start with but it's it's definitely worth it Mm, well said. Definitely Amen. true. Catherine, how about you? Any parting thoughts that you want to leave our listeners with? Yeah, I'm, I'm so happy to to talk to you guys, and what a great topic. You know, I just, Amanda used the word identification, and I think that is a key thing that when you're talking, when you're listening to the show or you're talking to other people in recovery or you're wondering, like, what is going on at a recovery meeting? Like, just listen for those those things that you do identify with and you know it doesn't matter what's going on on the outside because 
who's to say how lonely you are on the inside? Mm-hmm. Who's to say how much pain you're in? It's sort of like, you know, somebody could be in a marriage that looks perfect on Facebook and meanwhile is just a nightmare for the people in it. And it's the same kind of thing. Like who's to say, you know, oh, you're not that bad. Well, Nobody knows what's going on in our hearts, you know, especially if we're not telling anyone. Um, So when you listen to other people and identify, um, you know, where, where is it, where is it touching your heart? Um, Mm. You know, and I, I just sort of think that like my, my measure of resistance to admitting that I needed help might've been a big signpost um, along the way. And it was a huge relief to let down the resistance. It was just the fear of stopping was way worse than the actual surrender to sobriety. Oh, that is I will so that. true. It was the fear was huge. And then I was like, Oh, okay. I did this today. Maybe I can do it tomorrow. You know? Um, oh, yeah. That is so well said, Catherine. I just really that just resonated right through me too because it it all ties into that um you know it, that desire to be perceived as having it all together, our society and everything. We just that there's such an emphasis on that and there's something about you know, let alone admitting whether or not you're an alcoholic, just admitting that you're lonely or that you're on a mad search for mm-hmm. meaning or that you're suffering or that you're in pain or any of those things. I mean, it's it is extremely difficult for us to, for anybody, whether they're alcoholic or not, to take a hard look at those things. And, um, you know, when I, because the outside pressure points were so strong for me, I sort of thought, well, I'll get sober and then everything will be okay. Every, that, that That's the problem. Yeah. Now, it's, I'm an alcoholic. That's going to fix everything. But the 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 real miracle of recovery is that, you know, that, for me, drinking was always about changing how I felt on the inside. That's what it was. I didn't really ever want to be drunk. I didn't ever really, I mean, it wasn't about that. It was that it gave me very fleeting and momentary relief from myself. And mm-hmm. at the end of my drinking, I drank to obliterate myself. I just was so uncomfortable in my own skin. Um, and so the the fear of getting sober, what I realized as I got into recovery was it was a fear of just being with me. And my thoughts and, and, you know, sort of owning that I have these feelings, let alone how am I going to fix them. And so to be surrounded by other people, to have those points of identification, to read something online or meet somebody in person or have those points of, of, oh, me too. It's just I didn't have any me too's in my life before I got sober, and now I am surrounded by them. Um, And they don't try to tell me if I'm in enough, you know, they don't try to figure my heart out. They just love me and listen patiently as I figure it out myself. Um. And so, you know, it's like the coming to the admission of, oh, I'm an alcoholic. It seems sort of like, you know, my life is over. All these things are going to change. And, it's, you know, it's it's really not that black and white. It, for me, it was all just sort of a coming into myself. Um, and, you know, people around me didn't change. People around me didn't get better. I got better. And yep. what a gift what a gift that is. And you don't have to get arrested to get that gift. You don't have to have I mean it's just it's enough when it's enough. If you're tired of suffering and being in pain and you think that maybe alcohol isn't additive to your life, that's enough. That's you that's know, enough. why not make some why not make some choices for you? That's what we have a hard time doing is choosing ourselves. Um mm-hmm. and that you to know, me has been um, the real gift. Go ahead. You know, um 
Catherine mentioned the lonely thing. Actually, that just you made me think of that when you were talking about um, your marriage. I remember in the geographical cure of getting divorced. Um, I think just just don't underestimate the um, what loneliness does to a person. I remember in my marriage, my I I thought that. Um, well, I felt that I was lonely, that I was, you know, it was more, and I remember saying to myself, I was, it was more lonely being in, um, I'm living with someone and feeling alone than it would to be to just be alone. And um, and so I got divorced yeah. and I thought my life would get better. And it actually, that was probably, that that's, that was also the same time that I lost my mom. That's when my, my life spiraled out of control over the next year and a half. But um, when you're looking at something else and saying that's why my life is what's wrong with my life, try to really take a step back and look at yourself because mm-hmm. I I really the the loneliness loneliness in my marriage I I created that I didn't I couldn't acknowledge it at the time mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I could have done something mm-hmm. about it like I was looking at other things to say this is why I'm drinking and you you talked a lot about that in the beginning Catherine of your story about like I, I was giving myself reasons reasons to drink and you know the drinking was actually creating my my own isolation and I and I was isolated mm-hmm. yep. in around people and it's just yeah. uh, loneliness is huge you know uh, you know a lot of us trying to fit in and stuff like that and I don't I, I hope that makes sense but yeah it's just um if you're looking at something else just Try to. It's it's really hard to do, but you know, look at what. Try to look at what really is going on. Well, and it's true too that you know you that the difference now is that it's not like in sobriety I'm never lonely. It's just that I'm never alone. First of all, <laughs> there's always yeah. somebody I can reach out to. But I, what I'm able to do is sort of say, okay, well, this is lonely. I'm it, I'm gonna. It's not gonna kill me. I'm gonna be okay. I can, right. I metabolize loneliness totally differently. Than I did before. Now I understand that the that the power to to alter how I feel resides in the inside. I don't have to drink it away or make somebody else make me okay. Like that's the big difference. Well, maybe yeah, loneliness is a topic because it's it it is not about being alone. A, a guy I know who just the other day he said, you know, I I have 84 days, and last night I went out with my wife for her birthday, and all of a sudden I thought, wow, like a big glass of alcohol whatever he drinks you know would be would be great right now and mm. he reached out to some sober people and he didn't drink and you know whatever but i was like wow you know that for me that's loneliness when i'm out somewhere and i, I feel separate then so even yeah. if it's with other people if i'm isolated like oh, i feel different i feel like the weirdo cuz i don't have a drink or you know, I'm missing out on the fun that everybody's having at this birthday party. Like anytime I feel different or other than that, mm-hmm. for me, I call that loneliness. And yeah, and that's when I use my recovery tools to connect with people and, and try to get back into the fold. Well, I think yeah. we, yeah, that's 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 all. There's a whole show there. I'll have to put that yeah. one on the books because that's absolutely <laughs> <Yeah>. true. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you, Catherine. So great to have you tonight and Amanda and um, for sharing everything. And as we close the show as we normally do, we'd like to direct you to our parent organization, ShiningStrong.org. There you will find links to all of our resources, including the Bubble Hour and Crying Out Now and other initiatives around recovery advocacy. 
Visit the Bubble Hour's website at thebubblehour.com to find a link to many recovery resources, including Jean's blog, Unpickled, and my blog, One Crafty Mother. Our email address is thebubblehour at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and please let us know your feedback about tonight's show and any other topic suggestions that you may have. We've actually gotten a lot of um, great topic suggestions recently on our email, and um, we've also we do get emails from people just letting us know how they're feeling and reaching out and uh, talking about where they are in their journey, and, and we love getting those. So please do email us if you are so inclined. And we thank all of you for listening to the Bubble Hour, and I hope you guys all have a great evening and uh, happy New Year. And thanks again, thank Catherine. You. Great to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Happy New Take Year. Take care. Good night, ladies. Happy you New too. Year. Good night. Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.